Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation and spiritual biography with Oren Schlossberg and host Michael Lerner. Oren Schlossberg, welcome to the new school at Commonweal. It's good to be here. It's been a while. <laughs> Oren, you are the executive director of Commonweal, and um, this is the place I co-founded in 1976, so 47 years ago. And um, you have been with us now for 10 years, is that our? It will be 10 years in November. 10 years in November. So November 2023. And we agreed that you would like to join me for what we call one of our new school spiritual biographies. But essentially, they're conversations with uh, interesting people about how we become who we are. Mm -hmm. So it's been of great interest to me to do this with you. And um, I'm very grateful that we found the time to do it. So am I. Yeah. You have a poem to start us off with. Would you be willing to read it? Sure. Every day I get a poem, and this was the one that came in today, so I trust it's the poem that is supposed to be here. Late in the night I pay the unrest I owe to the life that has never lived and cannot live now. What the world could be is my good dream and my agony when, dreaming it, I lie awake and turn and look into the dark. I think of a luxury in the sturdiness and grace of necessary things, not in frivolity, that would heal the earth and heal men. But the end, too, is part of the pattern. The last labor of the heart, to learn to lie still, one with the earth again, and let the world go. That's Awake at Night by Wendell Berry. We have a tradition of reading things twice. Would you read it one more time? Late in the night I pay the unrest I owe to the life that has never lived and cannot live now. What the world could be is my good dream and my agony when, dreaming it, I lie awake and turn and look into the dark. I think of a luxury in the sturdiness and grace of necessary things, not in frivolity, that would heal the earth and heal men. But the end, too, is part of the pattern, the last labor of the heart, to learn to lie still, one with the earth again, and let the world go. Beautiful. So you began at Commonweal as our chief strategies officer. Um, how do you remember coming to Commonweal? How do you remember that happening? The paths in life are so complex. Mm -hmm. And the question is, from where do you start? Jean Evans, who's a Commonweal board member and a dear friend, suggested that I present on visual thinking strategies, which was the work that I did before I came to Commonweal, and share it with the Threshold Foundation, and that was my first time being at Pacific House. I, I've been in Bolinas many times. I've come through here since the late 80s. And 
to that meeting, she invited um, BJ, Dr. BJ Miller, who's a good friend, and, and Michael Lerner, who I knew nothing of. <laughs> and Kamova, which I actually didn't know much of as well. And I presented on VTS, and it was an exciting conversation. And I remember that at the end of it, you invited me to go on some walks with you. And about, this was probably in early 2013, and then we started walking the land, I would say, almost every six weeks for four or five times. And I I didn't know I was being interviewed. (laughs) And I don't think I was, because it was about forming the connection that I think has lasted till now. And I remember specific spots where we had different conversations. Um, I remember the conversation we had about your spiritual path. It was halfway from the upper parking lot down when you were telling me about, about Jesus and the Savior. I remember exactly the spot where that is. And I remember the spot that I was telling you about my experiences growing up in Israel, which was closer to the chapel. So there's certain places, um, landmarks on that path. And then by, I'd say something around May, when it was clear that I was leaving BTS, that's when you suggested that we should explore working at Commonweal. And I said, maybe. (laughs) I didn't want to jump into it after being an executive director for probably almost 20 years. I was not sure I wanted to take on another role. And that's when we came up with the title of Chief Strategies Officer, which actually happened in the Presidio when we were walking around there as the, the right entryway. And the, what, what clenched it was when we were sitting at my house and I asked you, why me? And that's when you pulled out um, the poem Famous by Naomi Shiab Nye. And that's when I realized that I can trust. There's something about this place that garners trust. And I'm like, okay, this is the right thing. So there are many benchmarks along the way, but it was really about feeling um, trust in the calling. And what are the lines from Naomi Shihab Nye's great poem, Famous, that really resonated for you? Well, the one that's stuck with me is the line that um, says something like the button is only famous to the buttonhole or something Mm -hmm. like that but it's about there being that when the fit is right it's right when the calling is right it's there Mm -hmm. and it's not a big grandiose thing it's not about um an alignment of vision and it's it's as simple and basic as that and that you can trust it as much as a button can trust a buttonhole mm, beautiful so you began as chief strategies officer and uh, how many years after that did you become executive director so chief strategies officer started in 2013 mm. and then i think it was in the summer of 2018 just as you turned 75 mm. That's when we decided that it, it was time for me to become executive director, and that's when we developed our partnership. Mm-hmm. 
there's another memory that sticks in, in my mind. Um, we were up on Whidbey Island together where Commonweal has a, a second uh, site. And we were actually driving home from dinner with some friends. And the conversation at dinner had been about succession of one executive director after another. And we just had a stoplight uh, as we hit the main highway. And you said something very remarkable. Uh, You said, I'm tired of talking about succession. I would rather talk about intergenerational leadership. And it almost made me cry because there was this immense generosity in it. You know, I mean, it's easy for people to sort of seize on succession as, um, you know, now the power comes to me. Now the old guy is out, you know, whatever. Uh, But that's not what you wanted. And uh, what you wanted was intergenerational leadership. And then as you became executive director, you then created another generation of leadership with the Stewardship Council, what you call the Stewardship Council. So where, where do you think this passion, for want of a better word, to include everyone possible, not everyone, but to include, to have a, an ecological structure that invites people at various different points in their journeys to actively participate in leadership. Has that always been true of you or did it kind of come about through your experience with Commonweal? I'm not sure where that came from. It feels intuitively right, mm-hmm. right? The idea of succession as if we're, you know, the Queen of England mm-hmm. dying and mm-hmm. her son gets to be king now. Mm-hmm. It only works in the case of royal families. It really doesn't work anywhere else. Mm-hmm. The fact that we think about, like, the presidency here of succession is also problematic, Um Communities are things that live beyond their leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I often even think about the word leader and what that means. Mm-hmm. And this whole focus on just focusing on the leaders. And it's like, well, but does that mean the 98% of the population are not leaders? I mean, what does leadership mean when, it's, when it manifests as an individual? Mm-hmm. Um, and something about that I, does not reflect how I see the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, when I was executive director in other organizations like BTS, it was more of a conventional model where there was one person in charge. But there's something about the Commonwealth community that was different that I think is what inspired the idea that leadership does not have to reflect the ego of one person. Mm-hmm. And... It's, it's something that I learned here. It's something that I learned here is that leadership does not have to be driven by the ego of one person. And that a leadership that cares for a community should be cared by a community. And it doesn't necessarily have to manifest in one person. And there's no need to concentrate the power. I mean, 
it's all relative. I mean, how much power is there in the, in the nonprofit? But there's no need to concentrate it in one person. How can one vision be sufficient to hold a large community, especially when the questions that we're asking are significantly bigger than one person? So the idea that you know, there's a generation that reaches its point and then it's out and then a new generation comes in, it just doesn't make sense. Hmm. It's like why all the experience, the relationships, the passion, the networks, the, the wisdom, whatever it is that we gain with time, it works across generation. When people ask you the question that I've been asked for 47 years, Commonweal? What is Commonweal? What do you say? <laughs> Don't you have an easier question? <laughs> um, it, it depends who I'm talking to more than anything. Um, but let's imagine that you're talking to a thoughtful person who's really interested and understands something about the nonprofit field and organizations. And suppose, suppose you're talking to somebody who really wants to know, and yet you're in a situation where time is somewhat contained. So, you know, it's the kind of three to five minute version. Uh, it's the <laughs> elevator speech, or if not the elevator, it's the escalator speech. Right. You know. what, what, long escalator. A long escalator. <laughs> What do you say? I usually say that Commonweal is a community of people that want to make a difference in the world, mm -hmm. that it's sourced and working um, with people with cancer and the Cancer Health Program, where you're in spaces where people are asking questions about life and death and what's really important for them. And that is the heart of Commonweal, and it has percolated over the years into a lot of different environments. So we have about 30 different programs that work in different areas uh, there's still a big focus on health and healing, and that is our area working in cancer, mm -hmm. such as the Cancer Health Program. We work in the area of environment and justice. And so there's different programs that work within prisons in the field of environmental health and toxins. And we're working within the area of education and the arts. We have a permaculture school. We have a program that does art in um, that works with using art as a way to develop critical thinking. There's 30 different programs, each led by a visionary program director, often people with a lot of experience that have a track record that are really doing the best work of their life. And over all of it, what's holding us together is this idea that the world is in a time of transition, that what we call the polycrisis, which is the convergence of the different threats that are facing the planet, is really forcing us to rethink how we're living and how we do the work that we do in the world. So the polycrisis holds all of these different areas, sometimes in a conscious intent of doing work differently, and sometimes just as a general guide to doing whatever the work it is. So it's a community of people that's based in Bolinas in the Point Reyes National Seashore at an amazing retreat center right at the edge of the Pacific in a physical container that holds the work that we do. And it's led by um, a team of people that work in Bolinas, a stewardship circle that holds the organization and, and a board. But our organization is 
upside down in a sense. Usually you have an executive director and their management team and then all the different programs. At Commonweal, the program directors are those that are at the that lead the organization and the stewardship circle and the team that works at uh, in Bolinas hold all of the program directors, but each program director in a sense is an, an executive director, a visionary le- leader of the work that they do. Suppose somebody says to you, well, that sounds very interesting. How do you fund it? It's a good question because how we fund it is a little bit of a mystery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> each program director is responsible for two primary things. It's to do the work that they're called to do and to identify the resources that they need. So each program will do it in their own way. Some will do it through um, through conventional fundraising, through individual donors. Some will do it through foundations. Some will generate programs that they can um, earn revenue that way. So it's a dispersed model of revenue that relies on a lot of different sources. Commonweal itself has its own sources as well as a portion of each program shares some of the cost of the core expenses. So that Mm. funds the overarching organization that is Commonweal. And so you said Commonweal has around 30 programs now, and that's really happened during your tenure. Um, um, uh, During your tenure as executive director, the, the budget has doubled, the number of staff has tripled, I think, something like that. Um, What, um, and sometimes you and, and your partners in the Stewardship uh, Council refer to Commonwealth 2.0 as mm-hmm. opposed to Commonwealth 1.0, which what I did. Um, uh, what are the, uh, what drove you to decide that um, expanding Commonwealth's work was the right and wise thing to do. When I when I started in November 2013, there was a retreat that weekend, which was um, your friend Michael Samuels was doing a retreat about art and healing. And we were standing outside there and I asked you, so how do you decide about who joins Commonweal? And you said the right people show up. Mm-hmm. And at that point, being new to Commonweal, I wasn't sure exactly what to do with it. It's not exactly something you put in your strategic plan, say, expansion plan. The right people will show up. (laughs) Um, But with the years, I actually saw how that happened. And the right people kept showing up. Um, A lot of our growth has been actually more internal than external. So we have programs that needed to address a new need. So when COVID hit and the Cancer Health Program could not serve on site, Arlene Alsman, who runs the Cancer Health Program, had to create sanctuaries. So we, instead of one program, we had two. Or Healing Circles, which was a small program that served the alumni in, of our Cancer Health Program and the, the Langley community in Whidbey, it went through the same experience. So from one program, we had five. So a lot of the growth was internal, and as well as other people that wanted to join the Commonweal community. I never had the intent of growing Commonweal. I never thought that bigger is necessarily better. I think that's an illusion um, that's informed by the societal models we live in. Um, deeper might be better. 
Um, but who am I to even say what better is? I trust mm-hmm. that what needs to happen will happen. And as people wanted to join the Commonweal community, um, looking for partnership, looking to be part of the community. If someone is looking for a fiscal sponsor, for someone to do the back office work, then there are other organizations that specialize in that. That is their calling, to provide HR and finance and admin support to people that want to run their own nonprofit projects. That's not how um, Commonweal works. For Commonweal, it's to be part of the community, wanting, choosing to be part of Commonweal is identifying with the values, feeling connected to the land, feeling part of the larger community. So as people showed up, they chose to be part of Commonweal. And we're still not looking for new programs. We've actually decided not to add new programs because Commonweal has grown because the calling has intensified. The need of the world, I think, has grown. To me, the the focus on the poly crisis is a need in the world that we had to do. And the work that you've been doing with uh, Omega, the Omega Resilience Award, the Resilience Funders Network, those are new programs that are responding to where the world is. The same thing with Healing Circles. I think Healing Circles is a technology and a methodology and way of being that is responding to what's needed in the world right now. We never did any kind of outreach or marketing for Healing Circles. It grew because it was needed. And I think that's a core value in when we're looking at Commonweal and how it grows. It's like, what is the calling? What is the need to be? I don't expect Commonweal to become a $50 million organization, but if that is the calling, then maybe we need to explore that mm-hmm. and see what it means. It also doesn't mean that we have to do everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's fine that somebody else does the work. I am also believe in one of the ways you present the fact that when a new program comes to Commonweal, we talk about how it ends. Nothing has to go on in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. So introducing those values, I'm hoping will keep the container not as big as it could be. But if our calling is to be is to provide access or provide services or provide thinking or providing community or provide place for exploring the soul or asking questions about mortality, whatever it is, I think it's something we should explore. I wouldn't say not to grow just because that is a principle, but I think each case, each each situation will require its own evaluation. You spoke of uh, people who want who share the values of Commonweal. How would you describe the values of Commonweal? Well, there's I think there's two sets of values. I think there's the organizational values. So what are the values that the organization holds when it's looking outwards? And usually what we talk about in that case is resilience, healing, and justice. When we look at our internal values, um, so it's how do we treat each other in this community, that's when I would talk about kindness, Mm -hmm. um, respect, Mm -hmm. being present for each other. And in some ways, those two sets of values are reflecting on different aspects of the organization, but they're also one in all. So that's sort of a brief synopsis of uh, how you came to Commonweal, your trajectory, how Commonweal has grown, um, how it works, 
how do you think you have, if if at all, how do you think you have changed or grown or evolved over the 10 years of your life that you've uh, devoted to this work? I can talk about what I learned. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I can reflect on how I evolved. Mm-hmm. I would say there are, I think my worldview has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the journey of my life is such that I got involved in in doing service from a relatively young age in my 20s. Um, but there was never an exploration of what that calling is and the context of which I was doing it. And when I came to Commonweal, those intentions became explicit. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Oren Slosberg and host Michael Lerner. So I started in November 2013. In February 2014, I was part of the Cancer Health Program. Not because I had a cancer diagnosis, but you kind of suggested that the Cancer Health Program, which is the source of Commonweal, the only way to really understand it is to be part of it. And we decided together that I would be a participant in it, not a member of the staff. So I really went through the whole thing as a participant. And I think that experience helped understand in a deep level what it means to be part of this community. I mean, I was part of, during the AIDS years in San Francisco, I was involved more as an activist. It was more of a head and service orientation. But at Commonweal, there's, for me, my experience has been at the soul level as much as it's been at the the service level or the intellectual level. And that, I think, is the deepest transformation because it provides a grounding and calling of how to do the work. So mm-hmm. the, the, the source of the work is from a different place. Mm-hmm. And I'm aware of it when, I, when I'm dealing with it day to day. There's a lot going on here. Mm-hmm. But being grounded both in the soil and in kind of the core questions around um, about life and calling, um, it gives me the strength to do what I do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, where were you born? I was born on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Uh-huh. Can't you tell <laughs> the glamour? <laughs> I was born in I was born in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Yes, my my parents. Um, both very idealistic young people mm-hmm. moved to the newly created Jewish state in 1955. Um, my mom was 20, my dad was 24. They were following their ideology. Um, at the time, I would say it was a different world of how they saw the world. Um, the The conversation and discourse around Israel has... We have learned a lot since then, but they were driven by a ideological passion to live on a kibbutz. And they spent about six years on a kibbutz and then decided to come back to the States. My mom is from Los Angeles. 
um, to pursue an academic education. So they were back here and, um, and I was born in the States, as was my older brother was born in Israel. My younger brother and I were both born in the States. And then when I was six, um, they decided to move back to Israel. What are your first memories? It's, uh, there are very few memories from growing up in, in Los Angeles. Um, I was there till I was six. There are, there are scattered shards of people and places. Um, we lived not too far from my grandmother and my mother's sister, my aunt and her family. And most of the memory of Los Angeles is uh, memories of family. My mm-hmm. grandmother's, um, my grandmother's apartment, our apartment. It's um, a sense of being held by family and having people um, loving. Um, it was the '60s. It was a different world, not the glamorous '60s of the Haight Ashbury. It was more the. It, was, it wasn't suburban. It was West LA, but it was, I think, a more um, reflection of probably more the 1950s and the 1960s. How did your parents make a living? Um, my mother was worked as some of the time she worked as a secretary, um, but she never she had yet to have an academic education. She was raising three kids. Um, my father started going to school, but then started working in the uh, beginning of the computer industry. He worked at NCR at the time, um, thinking that they were always in the place of when are they going to go back to Israel. They kind of knew they came here to go to school. I'm not sure exactly why they didn't, why my father never finished his education. But in 1970, they decided to go to Israel, partially because at the time, it was the beginning of the computer industry in Israel. And um, what has now become a mega corporation called Elbit um, invited my father, because he was involved with um, computers in the U.S., to be part of that initial effort in Israel. And I think that the offer of a job and the fact that my father's family was in Israel drew them back. Did he stay with that company? He did. Mm-hmm. He stayed in, I Basically, he, he ended up coming to Israel working with a, a startup. Mm-hmm. I, I assume startups in 1970 were different than they mm-hmm. are today. But ended up retiring from Elbit at 65. So his mm-hmm. entire career was spent working as a technician in computer companies in Israel. And your mother? My mother, my, so my dad's family had moved to Israel, then lived on, uh, on a kibbutz. Uh, my mom's family stayed in Los Angeles. And the only way she could figure out how to visit them all the time was by becoming a travel agent. So she became a travel agent, which allowed her to fly to the States almost every year. Um, and she did that until, they, until she retired. Uh, so where were you in eighth grade, or the equivalent of eighth grade? Um, eighth grade, I'm doing the math. Uh, <laughs> So eighth grade is a transition. I guess it is here too. Eighth grade is the year before you go to high school. Um, The the heart of my life in eighth grade were the scouts. So everybody in our neighborhood 
were... This is in Israel. This is in Haifa in Israel, yeah. And it's a little neighborhood on the Carmel Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot less people back then. And I would say 80% of the kids in the neighborhood belong to the Scouts, or at least it felt that way to us. It was our entire world. Um, and it was the same kids that went to school with us. So we all grew up together as a cohort. Um, and eighth grade is the year before you go to high school. And as it is here, there's kind of a path of elementary school, middle school, high school. Um, and so we were together in what we called, um, I don't have the words in English, but I, I would say a troop, I guess. Mm-hmm. They're not segregated by gender in Israel. The mm-hmm. scouts are co-gendered. By gen- yeah, multi-gendered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Um, I was very passionate about the Scouts, about belonging, about um, a whole network of friends. Um, I was aware of my my gayness. Mm-hmm. I knew that I was a little different and have yet to explore it, but it was on my it was on my mind. I was aware of it, um, but I kind of channeled our energies into. Um, being part of the scouts. And part of that was also that Israel was a young state then. So that would have been 1975. Um, It was a new state. We were very excited about the state of Israel as being a homeland for the Jews, as being a place where finally, after being in exile for thousands of years, these are the things we believed in. We'd sit around campfires and sing patriotic songs. Um, In hindsight, there was so much we didn't know. There's so much we weren't aware of. But we were deeply committed to the Zionist vision of a homeland for the Jews. And that was part of our youth movement organization. There were other amazing qualities to that youth organization, like being in leadership positions when I was, um, that would be a year later in ninth grade. Um, But I learned so much from being part of that movement. I've also learned so much about the problematic aspects of what was hidden, that what we were not talking about. You know, what was the price of creating a Jewish state? What does it mean to have um, a segregated city? Those was not part of our conversations when I was in eighth grade. Um, I think there was a subtle awareness among some of us about the importance of building... um, kind of an acceptance of, of Muslims and Christians, but there were also people among us that were on the right wing. We were all kind of together in, um, on that journey. Hmm. And there's a lot of them are still close friends of mine. Hmm. And what were you like uh, at the equivalent of being a senior in high school? What, where were you? What were you like? And so... Um, for some reason that I'm still puzzled about, at mm-hmm. the end of eighth grade, I decided to go to a different high school than where all my friends went. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was like so in um, the Technion is Israel's parallel to MIT, mm-hmm. and the Technion had a high school. So I decided to go be in a more vocational oriented school not vocational necessarily learning anything hands-on. Um, I studied computers and electronics. I think we were the first computer major in a high school in Israel. And in, in Israel, high schools have majors. 
Um, <clears throat> so I studied computers. Yes, we used to go to the Technion and program in basic with those cards and um, it feels so archaic now. <laughs> but my, the other side of me, the, the scouts continued to be really important for me. And um, you ended up being in a real leadership position in scouts. When I was a senior in high school, I had a responsibility for about 300 young people mm-hmm. between the ages of fifth grade and, mm-hmm. and 11th grade. Um, so, but that's the youth, the Israeli youth movement, the Jewish youth movements were very pure led. So, as, as a 16 year old, I was a counselor for a group of six graders. Mm-hmm. Ten of them, twice a week, every Tuesday and Saturday, we'd get together. Mm-hmm. My, my younger brother was in that group. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure about the wisdom of that exactly. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> but for, for a whole year, I'd prepare lesson plans. Mm-hmm. And all of my peers did as well. And by the time I was a senior, we did that at an organizational level. And, and there then were, you had 300 young people. And there were 300 yeah. young people. And there were like all these... You know... Um, my friend Bill Drayton, who founded an organization called Ashoka uh, uh, Entrepreneurs for the Public, which is a global organization, and um, he and I have stayed in touch, and uh, with another friend, Howard Gardner, who teaches um, education at Harvard, and the three of us talk regularly. And in the last conversation uh, we had, he said something that I have remembered. He said that... Um, he had a friend who only hired high school valedictorians. And the theory was that when you're a senior in high school, the mold is basically set in Mm -hmm. some fundamental way. And by the time you get to be a senior in college, it often gets obscured in some way or other. But that the question of what somebody was doing when they were a senior in high school. And so you're, you're, you know, appropriately humble description of what you were doing. You know, it's peer led. It's not such a big deal. But the fact remains that you were overseeing the well-being of 300 young scouts as a senior in high school, right? Or actually, you said, or is it the first? No, it's senior. In no, high it's as a senior. Right. Yeah. And uh, and then because I know something of your career, uh, that process, and you never. It's not like, it's not like you seem ambitious in the world, but you keep showing up in leadership positions, and I guess that I'll pose it to you as a question. Uh, do you think the die was cast by the time you were in a senior in high school from this experience in the Scouts, or not? It, it definitely set a trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't feel like I actually ever um, sought out to be in leadership. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of a job that I actually, a leadership job that I ever applied for. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think, yes, I think in my case that's true. I'm not sure that's true for everybody. 
Um, mm-hmm. I think for me, growing up in the Scouts and having the kind of responsibilities and having <clears throat> the support of the family and the community that I was around provided a space where I could develop. I mean, I could see the developmental arch and how by the time I was in high school, um, I was trusted by other people and I trusted others. Mm-hmm. There was, a, I did have confidence in what I was doing, though it's not the confidence of on the torchbearer it's like i can i i I can do this so i will do it Mm -hmm. more and by the time you were since you've described that as an eighth grade you were always already aware of your gayness but hadn't explored it had that exploration begun by the time you were a senior in high school um i would say experimentation has begun Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i was out to maybe one or two close friends who mm-hmm. I trusted, mostly because they were in, they were either artists or in the dance community, so I knew they were somewhat aware of it. But Israel in the nineteen, the late seventies, really didn't have a visible gay community. It was quite homophobic, was it not? I don't think there was enough knowledge about gayness to be homophobic. Okay. I don't think it just I, wasn't visible. It was completely invisible. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming that's how it was in a lot of parts of the world, except for major metropolitan areas in the US. But did it make you feel strange or isolated or different? Or how, how, what was your inner response to yeah. not only beginning to be aware of it, but beginning to experiment? I mean, I, I had. I started experimenting when I was about 15. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was aware of the physical aspects mm-hmm. of it. And I had some awareness of what being gay meant, mm-hmm. mostly because I visited the States twice because mm-hmm. my grandmother lived here. And I, I don't remember how I became aware of it, mm-hmm. but I do remember coming back to Israel um, feeling like this does exist in the world mm-hmm. because there were no sources of information. So I don't, I, I, I've wondered about that actually recently. It's like, do I feel like I was um, not coming out? Mm-hmm. Was that a, a suppression or was I just not ready yet? Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure what the answer is. When I did come out, it definitely felt like it was the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, did you come out? I came out when I was 20. And where were you then? Um, well, it was a process of coming out. It was uh, the, the, my, my first partner, then we stayed together for eight years, was introduced to me by my best friend. Hmm. She not knowing that I was gay or that he was gay. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, his best friend had met me. Mm-hmm. And they both did not know about our attraction to men. And they both felt that we needed to meet each other. Mm-hmm. So he called me up. I was at my parents' house. I was in the army at that point, mm-hmm. and I was lying on the couch and speaking on one of those big, heavy wireless phones, mm-hmm. cordless phones. And my parents are around, and I'm talking, and, and he says, I hear you're interested in men. <laughs> <laughs> Which was, I mean, there was no way for him to hear about it. <laughs> but... Um, this guy who's still a deep friend is a deeply intuitive soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just knew. And there was just like, at that moment, I felt like I was, that it opened up. Mm-hmm. Just that question. Um, and then we met in person and started a very turbulent relationship as one often has in their 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then I gradually started coming up to my close friends. I came out to my parents a year later. Um, my, how, how did they respond? So there was a period when I broke up with Uli, who was my first partner. And I was with another guy who to me was an older guy because he was 27. I was 21. And my mother came to visit and... Um, she was in this one-bedroom apartment. She was clearly, there was no two rooms in the space. And she was going through something. And I was like, okay, I have to say it. So mm-hmm. I sat down to her and I, I told her that I was gay. Her first response was, don't tell the neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> Which is relatively a really good response. Yeah, right. And we had a deeper conversation mm-hmm. um, she told my dad she didn't want to tell my brothers at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, she suggested I go to a therapist because mm-hmm. I don't think it was for homophobic reasons, mm-hmm. like to cure. I think it was about she was looking for ways to support me in my coming mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't think I had an issue. At that point, I was connected with the gay community. The therapist said to me, I think you're fine, but if you want me to talk to your parents, I'm happy to. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of... And there was... They were quite accepting. It took time for them to internalize it, mm-hmm. but ideologically they wanted to be present. My mm-hmm. mother was a feminist, mm-hmm. which in the early 70s in Israel was not a common household idea. Mm-hmm. And she was a strong feminist, believing in women's rights, mm-hmm. and she was explicit about it. And my father was with her on that. So I think this kind of extended the, the mm-hmm. idea that that human rights are shared across mm-hmm. gender lines and I guess sexuality as well. Mm-hmm. So I think ideologically they were there. It took some time for them, I think, to adjust emotionally. And what, what were you like as a senior in college? Was that at 20 or 21 or what? what no, what? I was in the army from 18 to 22. Oh, okay. So let's talk about that. What was it like to be in the army? Uh, Well, you know, the Army makes a man out of you, <laughs> whether you like it or not. The Army was not easy. I mean, it's not easy for anybody. There are those that are passionate about being soldiers. That was not my calling. When I went on my first day in the Army, you go to this big Army base, and all the new soldiers come on the same day. And all those pictures of like how you sort soldiers in the Vietnam film, that's how it is. You stand in long, long lines, you get your equipment, they cut your hair, they give you the immunizations, you're assigned a number. I still remember that number. What is it? 3700341. That is your personal ID 370 number. 3700341. 370 Same number as a phone. A phone. Yeah. I bet it's longer now. I think there's something about seven integers that the human mind is prepared to remember. I think that's true. And in Israel, if you're of my age group, you will know when someone was recruited by their number. And when I was there, they give you different options of what to do. And I knew that despite the fact that I grew up in the scouts with all these diehard Zionists that wanted to go to combat, I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. I was not interested. Personally, my, the macho ideal was not something that was drawing on me, mm-hmm. though I did play the game. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And also my older brother was injured in uh, war in 1977. Hmm. So it kind of had the baggage of not wanting to, to choose that kind of army service. So when I was there, they kind of give you a choice, which I'm not sure if it's a real choice or not. Um, but they presented the option to me to sign on for an additional year and then go study how to work in um, electronics on airplanes. So I learned communication and navigation systems in the Israeli Air Force. Um, so I was for about eight months in a course on how to use computers and electronics on um, combat planes. And then my entire service was then uh, working at an Air Force base I was drafted in November 81. The Lebanon war broke out in 82. Um, most of my peers were actually infantry in combat. Um, I, my service was different. We were working on airplanes. We were fixing airplanes. I had a brief stint in Lebanon for a few weeks. And that was quite influential. Being, How so? Well, I didn't have the combat training, so I was not ready. This was not my calling to be on the front lines. And I ended up being on the front lines because of other reasons, mostly about collecting broken Syrian airplanes. But being for, it was just for a few weeks in Lebanon, um, hearing bullets, um, being surrounded with uh, um, being in a war setting. In a hearing bullets, you mean live fire yeah. around you? Yes. You could hear the life fire around. We were intense. Um, so there was, and I wasn't prepared for it. I mean, I don't know if my peers, the ones that had prepared for it, was any easier. I doubt it. But for me, I was taken out of this Air Force base in the middle of Israel, um, taken into Lebanon a few, few days after the invasion of Lebanon started. It was, it was, it was about as frightening as you can. It's like you are scared for your life and there's a good reason for it. And all of one's values come into question. I've always been opposing war, opposing violence. That was something I got from my parents. It was a little weird growing up in Israel with that sentiment. It's really weird holding those values when you're in a war setting. And when you, you're traveling around to these different sites, you're in an armored car and there are guards before and after. Um, so it's like being aware of the war and physically experiencing it. I guess you could say it was traumatizing. Mm -hmm. I think I would use the word traumatizing. And it was, so what happened then also is like all my friends were in this war and they had deeply traumatizing experiences. I think the whole country has PTSD, but definitely the generations of people that were engaged in, in mm -hmm. active violence and war. And, Part of it is that I'm not sure that for me that war was a war for the survival of Israel. The other wars, the one that you were in, felt like there was the attack of Arab countries. So you can create a narrative. It's like we do this or we die. Going into Lebanon was not exactly that narrative. It was more complex. And I think that started challenging the, my ideology of what it meant to be an Israeli, what it meant to be a Jew in Israel. You mentioned that I was in the Six-Day War. My brother, Steve Lerner, and I flew over uh, to support Israel in the Six-Day War. We were both 
credentialed as war correspondents. I had a credential from the Washington Post and uh, the Atlantic Monthly and my brother from the Village Voice. And I uh, went into uh, uh, the Syrian hills uh, with Israeli assault troops, not the the really dramatic um, uh, hills, but further um, further down where uh, uh, and we we uh, I and several other correspondents hitched a ride in a um, a brigade of jeeps that was going in on a kind of a trail into the Syrian hills. And the closest I came to getting killed was when the commander of the brigade realized that there were some journalists, and he ordered the soldiers to have us get off the jeeps and walk back toward the Israeli lines where the Israelis mm-hmm. were waiting for infiltrators and stuff. So that really scared the older correspondents. I didn't know the scene well enough to be as scared as they were. And then the other incredible memory. Uh, after that, I went south uh, to the Sinai Peninsula, and I was in the first car of correspondence to cross the Sinai, which Israel had just taken back from the Egyptians. Uh, and it was like a Fellini movie. There were all these tanks and half-tracks kind of burning, and then there were bodies that were scattered like flowers of some Mm. kind on the desert. And I remember stopping, there was one Egyptian soldier whose legs weren't working and he was sitting by the side of the road and we gave him some water. And then off to the left, about a hundred yards or more away, there were all these Egyptian soldiers who were walking back uh, toward Egypt. Um, And the whole experience uh, convinced me that I didn't want to be a war correspondent. It was one, in other words, one of my real, you know, I had a sort of a choice of career paths. One was to be uh, a, a professor at a university, and another was to be a, a journalist because I'd been pursuing both careers. And I just realized, um, and it's similar to what you said, but different, I didn't want to get killed. Yeah. You know, I was not interested. I mean, you know, I I had been attracted by the the drama of being a war correspondent, but in the event, uh, and um, I didn't want to get killed. So anyway, and and similar to what you said, when we went over for the Six Day War, what was the scene? The scene was that this state that we could still deeply relate to. You know, I'm half Jewish, my brother's half Jewish, but we were very identified with the importance of Israel and this state that you could still relate to as an idealistic visionary state. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. This uh, state that uh, you could relate to as an idealistic visionary state was looked like it was about to get wiped off the map. Right. That's what it looked like. And so we thought, that's not okay. And, you know, we'll go, and we were willing to fight. But by the time we got there, um, they, no, they certainly didn't need us to fight, but the war was active. Uh, and so um, uh, we both went into combat zones. Yeah. Um, I still have somewhere 
my Israeli press pass with my photograph on it and the Hebrew lettering. I think you had more experience of the war than I did. Well, it could be. It could be. Um, But I wasn't under live fire. I wasn't under live fire. Yeah. That was, I mean, part of it is also that um, growing up, I was very much a secular Jew. Mm -hmm. Um, My first form of activism was probably when I was 16, going to the Knesset to demonstrate against the fact that Orthodox men my age were not going into the army, which is still a struggle that's going on there. So my my passion at the time was very much for the state of Israel, but the understanding that this Jewish identity is more complex than it seems. And I think also being American and queer also differentiated me from others. I was always seen as the American. I didn't have an American accent by the time I was in high school, but that was part of the identity that I was different. And the fact that I always knew that I would be, um, that I would not be in combat, that I did not believe in violence anymore. Those things distinguished me from a lot of my peers, we still had close, I mean, they're like my family, mm-hmm. but we have different ideologies for sure. And from a very young age, I said that I, I don't know if I would be staying in Israel, that I wanted to leave. Mm. Um, and I think the war and those times might have cemented that. It's like, this is not the life that I am choosing to have. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Oren Slosberg and host Michael Lerner. Now, you were a secular Jew, and you knew that, an American uh, gay and uh, secular, uh, and you weren't sure you would stay in Israel. But leaving aside the secular Jewish identification, would you say that your core mindset was secular or that there were spiritual uh, inclinations that weren't contained in the secular Jewish identity that you somehow related to or not? I think at that point, I knew that the Jewish identity was not a spiritual identity for me. Um, I remember having conversations about this when I was a teenager that the idea of a monotheistic God was not the feeling that I shared. I didn't necessarily have a, I didn't have the language or the experience to express what else there might be that came a lot later. Mm. Um, I always had a strong connection to nature and I felt a bond. I used to to touch and talk to plants when I was a kid. Mm. I remember used to, I used to pet plants and I remember the, the time when I was in like fourth grade and says, I better stop doing this. People will think I'm weird. And there's enough reason for them to think that I'm weird. I don't need to add another one. Um, so that connection to me was always very real. I was very much, I like being in nature. I like being outside. So you talked to plants. Did you have an experience that they heard you or responded or anything? Or? No, it was clear to me that we were communicating. Oh, it was? Oh, there was no doubt, especially okay. when I was a young kid. And do you still believe that? I do. All right. I do believe that, so, yes. So this is something I didn't know about you, by the way. Good thing we're doing this. No, I didn't. <laughs> no, but it's actually a really big deal. 
It's yeah. a really big deal. So you have an experience that you are able to talk to plants and that they respond and that this is an actual... Yes, I, I wouldn't call it a linguistical exchange. No. We're not having conversations, right. but I've always had... I, I, I can feel the presence of plants. Yeah. I feel connected to nature in a very... I don't even sure what level that is at. Uh-huh. That's always been the case. And you resonate to the meaning of your name, Oren, as well. And that's, right? I think, a big part of it. I think it's not a coincidence that my parents named me Oren, which is not a, it's not a name that was in my family. It's very much of a kind of modern Zionist name. It means pine tree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always felt the connection with, mm-hmm. with, with pine trees and trees and so on. It was a very intense moment to see a redwood for the first time mm. because just the, the presence of it as a being mm-hmm. is so deeply powerful. So do you have, a, when you walk around in the woods around the retreat center, what's the experience? To me being, I mean, I, I, I don't think I'm the only one. I think being in uh, surrounded by living plants um, there's a sense of coming home. Mm-hmm. It feels like the natural environment for me. Mm-hmm. It feels like the right place to be. Um, it feels more open and welcoming than any man-made structure. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel the flow of, I don't know what you want to call it. I, every term has its baggage, the life force, so to speak, the, the chi. Um, but I have a... To me, it's clear. I mean, it's like, it's, it's so obvious. Like, plants have an aura of sorts. And not a, it's not that I see a glare, but you feel the presence of it. You feel the presence of another living being. I'm very aware that Kira is sitting with us and <laughs> having a... <laughs> did you know this about her? I did not know. Yeah, I no. did not know. And Jennifer is here. And... Susan. Susan is here. There are quite a few people here who I think uh, resonate to this and something quite a few of us didn't know before. Yeah, it was sad when I realized that I can't talk to plants. I can't be with plants anymore. I've always been part of nature. What do you mean you can't be with them? Well, when I was, it was, I remember exactly where it is. It's funny how these places stick. This place called Ganeshashwim, which means playground, which is about half a block from the school. My brother knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and there's a little path that went up to the next block. And there was, a, on the side, there was a plant. I could identify the plant. I don't know the name of it, but I know exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, caressing the leaves. And it says, like, you know, I can't do this anymore because people will think that it's different. Mm-hmm. So I was aware of that kind of, that, Mm. being oppressed in some ways. I'm not sure oppressed is the right word, but I felt like at that point I needed to fit in with the humans around me, so I had to let go of that. But throughout my life, I mean, hiking and being in nature um, is always a source of energy, Mm. sometimes more than even being with humans. Mm. So after you finished uh, in the uh, military, what happened next? Um, So... That kind of coincided with coming out mm-hmm. to myself, to my families, to my friends. Um, the last year of my army service, I lived in Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. So this would be 1984. And the, the, the gay scene at the time was very much 
kind of bohemian and avant-garde. And so in the last year of the army, you actually get a real salary. So I was able to afford um, renting an apartment. And I rented an apartment in this neighborhood at the time, which was mostly a Yemenite old village, one of the original neighborhoods in Tel Aviv called Nevet Sedek. And my, my boyfriend at the time, the one who called me on the phone, um, we moved in together into this structure that was one of the first structures built in Tel Aviv. And at the time, the neighborhood had a lot of older Yemenite people that migrated to Israel in the 50s and 60s, and a bunch of younger artists. These were Yemenite Jews? Yes, Yemenite yeah. Jews. Yeah. Um, a bunch of younger kind of bohemian style, like the... Mm. A friend of mine then, who's now a known Israeli author, Elan Sheinfeld, was the editor of a post postmodern figurative poetry magazine. So postmodern figurative poetry magazine. Yes. That sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> Just the beginning of it. I mean, postmodern figurative. You got it right there. The clash of those two. Uh, it was know. postmodern in the sense that he was using like Talmudic and biblical language mm-hmm. to write descriptive poems, so not too abstract in mm-hmm. the poetic form. Mm-hmm. Um, he's quite a renowned Israeli poet, but that's the world I was living in. Mm-hmm. Paradoxes were not a problem. <laughs> And he was one of the first out gay men that I knew. He was one of the first out gay men in Israel. He was a a journalist for Daval, which was the labor movement newspaper. And he came out in the newspaper, which is a big deal. So those were the circles that I was involved with. So when I was out of the army, I stayed in the Betzedek, hung out with all these artists and actors. Um, The AIDS pandemic was still a distant thing. It was very much at the beginning, so it wasn't present. There was not much of a gay community in Israel. There used to be a gay bar would pop up for six months and then close and then pop up somewhere else and then close. But there was no establishment. There was a civil rights movement. It started, I think, in the 70s, but it really didn't have much of a present. So I was involved in that community. um, And then I got a job at the Israeli National Theater as a soundman, and I think as I, a soundman, I did sound uh-huh. um, for for major productions, and I think I got the job because one of the people in our little group was the he was a way older guy. He was like in his thirties, mm-hmm. um, and he was the general director of Habima, the National Theater. That's why I got the job. Uh, <laughs> it's a very different life, but. Mm-hmm. That is what helped me come out of my shell. I had a a community around me that was very reinforcing about being gay. It was supportive around that. Um, My parents lived in Haifa. I had a few friends that I I stayed in touch with, like my childhood friends, but it was was a very bifabricated. My life was split. I had my Tel Aviv life, which was gay and artsy, and my Haifa life, which was my old friends from the Scouts. And at some point, it was, I need to get out of here. It was a little bit around the queerness. It was also curiosity about living in Los Angeles. I was curious about the film industry. Um, So in 1986, I moved to Los Angeles. And I decided to try and get into the UCLA film school. I got into UCLA after a year of being in Los Angeles. I felt like this is not the place for me. And I transferred to Berkeley and ended up living 
living in, since then I've been in the Bay Area. And studying linguistics. I studied linguistics, yes. I got my BA at Berkeley in linguistics. And how, what caused you to shift from filmmaking and technology to linguistics? What was that all about? There was a class taught by Professor Hinton, who was a specialist in um, indigenous languages. And I took it on a whim. And it fascinated me. I was just drawn to how we make meaning out of the world. It was such an opening. It could be a little bit because I grew up bilingual. Um, to me, is that door opened up. I dropped mm. all of my other classes and just took linguistics. And I mean, till today, it's a, I think a key part of how I think is how we make meaning out of the world. How long were you at Berkeley? I was there for three years. Getting an undergraduate? It was an undergrad degree, degree. yes. And what were your Berkeley years like? So by the time I was in Berkeley, I was living in San Francisco. That would have been... I had broken up with my my childhood boyfriend. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were very much immersed in academia, I, my job was running a Jewish youth group because I was trained to do that in the scouts. So it was an easy job to do um, while in the U.S. Um, Jewish summer camps. And um, it was called Young Judea, which was the Hadassah youth organization. Mm-hmm. And my life was very much focused on Berkeley. It was being a college student. I didn't do extracurricular activities. I, now, didn't you meet your husband Irwin there? Uh, I met Erwin after I left. Oh. Yeah, I graduated in 92, and then I met Erwin at a Passover Seder. But I thought he studied uh, linguistics at Berkeley also. Am I Um, making that up? uh, He studied linguistics at University of Chicago. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. But our paths crossed at a Passover Seder. Ah, so the, the linguistics, I think, was part of the glue that brought us together, but our linguistical careers are uh-huh. very separate from each other. Was it love at first sight? It kind of was. It was mm-hmm. um, the confluence of circumstances that made sense. Uh-huh. I met his, um, his ex, who was already his ex the night before at a Passover Seder, uh-huh. and he told me that Erwin um, liked folk dancing and that he also studied Neo-Aramaic, which is... Uh, which is a language that's spoken in the Assyrian community, which was happened to be the, the language that I decided to do my undergrad research on. So when I met him the following day, he didn't know I knew all this stuff about him. But he was a lawyer at the time. Mm-hmm. And so when we were reading the Haggadah, the Passover book, I decided to test the waters by reading a section that's written in Aramaic, Um, And Aramaic is pronounced differently than Hebrew, though nobody today actually, they read it as if it's Hebrew, it's the same letters. But there are some consonants that are pronounced differently, so I read it in Aramaic, which is about the geekiest thing you can do. It's like there's so few people who would ever notice that. Nobody in the room noticed it except for Erwin, Um, but it did the magic. (laughs) So... um, that, that's when we met, and then our first date was um, on Shavuot, which was seven weeks later. Um, and we spent most of the night studying the first um, few lines of the Book of Ruth, looking at it from a linguistical and a biblical analysis. 
So, now, Irwin, <laughs> so at that time, Irwin was an attorney. Yes. And I've done New School conversations with Irwin, who, by the way, I adore. And uh, he, as you know, he's my rabbi. And I never wanted a rabbi before. I had no wish at all to have a rabbi. But I met him when I realized that he was my rabbi. And, uh, and uh, But I know him well enough to know that when he was growing up, he wanted to be a rabbi. Right. Uh, but that um, at that point, the rabbinical schools wouldn't take gay people. And the advice he got was, well, just hide it. But he was with a boyfriend. He was unwilling to do that to the boyfriend. So he became a lawyer instead. And I believe that he wrote the first gay rights uh, legislation for the city of Chicago. That's right. Yeah, Yeah. he wrote the the Uh, civil rights ordinance. And then... Long, long story, but he ends up with the Ner Shalom synagogue near where you both live, and the rabbi leaves, and Irwin has the chops to fill in for him. Right. And then they think about, do they want to go find another rabbi? And they say, no, we want Irwin to be the rabbi. And meanwhile, he finishes rabbinical school mm-hmm. and recently got his credentials. That's right. Yeah, so sort of bringing that piece of the story in. And keep in mind that, you know, I was the secular Jew right. that did not, that my core beliefs were not the core Jewish beliefs. I right. was demonstrating against Orthodox Jews growing right. up. Right. Um, suddenly with a man that saw his calling as being a rabbi. And a deeply spiritual man. Very. Profoundly spiritual man. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Irwin is, and beyond brilliant. I mean, that's the other thing. Um, I really encourage anybody who hasn't uh, looked up Irwin Keller uh, and his his, uh, talks. Yeah. Uh, to do so, That's, he's, and and his synagogue is incredibly diverse, right? I mean, <laughs> depends about how you measure diversity. They're all Jews, mostly. <laughs> well, I understand, but <laughs> he—it's a uh, Ner Shalom in Katadi in Sonoma County. Yeah, he has a, a quite a mixture of people. Mm-hmm. And what? What branch of Judaism remind me of what it's called? So Erwin is trained as a Jewish renewal rabbi, right. but the synagogue is a reconstructionist synagogue. Right. So, and Jewish renewal is Zalman Schechter, is yes. that right? And he studied in Zalman Schechter's rabbinical yes. school. And then reconstruction goes back to, is it Kaplan? Yep, it's Kaplan. Yeah, Mordechai Kaplan? Yeah, yeah. Mordechai Kaplan. And Kaplan and reconstruction Judaism was... An early revisionist Jewish yes. uh, branch. Yeah, I think of they've been around for about a hundred years. Yeah. So we brought you up through Berkeley, meeting Irwin, uh, beginning to uh, get together, uh, and uh, working as a summer camp counselor while you were at Berkeley. What happened after you? Uh, did you graduate from Berkeley? I did. I yeah. graduated in 90... But in three years. Um, because I had a year at UCLA oh, before that. Uh, so what did you do next? Well, I wasn't sure what I was going to do mm-hmm. next. Um, 
So um, in my last year of college is when I got more connected with the gay community. So I, was, I worked a lot in the Jewish community because it was a convenient landing pad, not necessarily because I was ideologically motivated. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just the easiest job. I could teach Hebrew. Um, but towards the end of uh, college, when I was 28 already, I went to college later because of the Army, I started connecting more with the gay community, and um, I discovered um, two groups. One is Queer Minion, which was a group of people around my age, maybe a little bit older, but not a lot, um, that would, they were basically unaffiliated, disenchanted Jews that did not find their place in the established uh, Jewish community. And a lot of them shared a background of activism. They were involved in ACT UP and Coronation and different movements that were going on at the time, as well a bunch of them were also radical fairies. So we used to gather the third Friday of every month and have a Shabbat service. This went on for years. And it was a lot of chanting, there were a lot of pagan overtones, a lot of very earth-based traditions, but woven in with Judaism, which is not hard to do because Judaism is so much an earth-based religion if you go to its roots. Um, and that was my community. So the queer minion community was one of them. Um, and the other one that I discovered were the radical fairies. And that was just as I f- was finishing Berkeley. Um, and that was the year that I met Erwin at the Passover Seder. So this was all happening in 1994. So you're going to have to describe to people who the radical fairies are. It's a, it's a hard one. I know. <laughs> I don't know if it's sacrilegious to try and describe them. The radical fairies are... Who started them? Harry Hay started them in 1979. Harry Hay was a professor of music, I think, um, and a communist. He was the founder of the first gay organization in the U.S. in the 1940s called the Mattachine Society, where gay men would organize in small groups. And this is based on a French model of the Mattachine Society, I assume, um, where one group didn't know about each other because gay men were persecuted in the U.S. in the late 40s. This is after the Kinsey Report, so there's some awareness around this. Um, so Harry Hay created the Mattachine Society, which I think is the first gay organization in the U.S., not in the world. There's the work that um, Hirschfeld did in Birdland in the 30s. Um, and Harry was involved in that. Eventually, he was kind of kicked out because he was a communist, and most of the gay men were interested in becoming part of the U.S. society, not standing apart from it. And he ended up creating the Radical Fairies, which is so hard to describe. (laughs) They started meeting in nature. They're Um, radical and they're fairies, right? They are radical and they're fairies. So you know what radical is, you know what fairies are. Go figure. Um, Fairies come together in gatherings, in in nature settings, camping, not a developed retreat center. I mean, things have changed in the last 50 Mm -hmm. years, but originally they would camp. The heart of a gathering is a heart circle Mm -hmm. where you would sit. It's like a healing circle. It is, but it could be with 200 people. Mm -hmm. And you learn how to talk from the heart. Mm -hmm. And they say learn because it takes time until you can enter that space. Mm -hmm. And there's very specific structures. Um, it's also a very playful and creative community. Mm-hmm. It's sexually very liberated. It's in nature. There are things mm-hmm. like talent shows and naked hikes and mm-hmm. yoga every morning. Um, it is quite radical. There's no structure. 
I remember gatherings of 200 people and you don't know when breakfast is because breakfast happens when somebody decides to make breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't know how long the heart circle is going to be. It could go on for eight hours. Someone forgets to take their meds, they can talk for half an hour. Um, so, But it's, a, <clears throat> it's an extremely supportive community. And these are the post, um, eight, not post, this is during the HIV days. Mm-hmm. So it was a place where gay men could come and truly celebrate who they are. And coming to the ferries for most people is this deep, soulful coming home. The way people feel about the Cancer Health Program, it's like, I found my place, I found my people, I found my land. That's what it feels like to be a ferry. It's like this deep awakening. This was happening, you just mentioned the HIV uh, epidemic. When did that enter into your world, the HIV epidemic? So... When I discovered the fairies and I was more connected with the, with the queer community, I started to become more aware of the gay institutions in San Francisco. This is all in 1994. I met Erwin in May. I graduated in July. I went for a two-month trip to Alaska. I just drove my car to Alaska and spent two months out there. And then I came back and I got a job at the LGBT Youth Center Lyric in San Francisco. In Which November. you were the founder of. I was not the founder of. It oh. was founded in 89. And I joined four years later. I was the first program director there. I ran the after school program. Um, and that's where I met Anne, who would eventually become one of my co-parents. Mm-hmm. Um, that was all in 94. And that's when I got really plugged into the queer community. And I think for the next... Almost six years I worked. I worked at Lyric until 99, and then I worked um, at the LGBT Center. And HIV was already, well, it wasn't already. HIV was part of gay life at the time. Walking around the Castro, you really could sense AIDS in the air. There was the, there was kind of like the experience of COVID, or like a Freddy to touch someone, kind of wearing how the physical contact could be infectious. Um, Those are the kind of things we carried around. And I was working a lot in HIV preventions with teenagers. Erwin was actually at the time working at the AIDS legal referral panel. So our our life were engaged with the... There was no way to be involved in the queer community without having AIDS being present, especially in San Francisco, especially in the Castro. So it was omnipresent. Um, This was 19... This was 1994. And then... I was infected with HIV in March 1995. Um, that's after I was with Erwin, um, which was another life-changing moment. Profound. Uh, Can you say anything about what that was like well, when you discovered it? 95. So the way I discovered it is there are many chapters of the story. That specific chapter, I was living with two women, and we were going to have a family. You know, we were all in our very early 30s. We bought a house together. Um, And the idea was that we're going to make babies together. So I went to get an HIV test in order to make sure that before we start the insemination process, and that's when I discovered that I was HIV positive. Um, And these are the days before there were protease inhibitors. So there was no... So an HIV diagnosis was was terminal to some extent. It wasn't as bad as it was 10 years before, um, but there was no real medication at the time. So what, what was your response? Um, my first response was to take care of myself. Um, it was quitting smoking, um, 
eating healthy, um, reading up as much as I could. My coping mechanism was like, study as much as I can. And at the time, HIV research was big. There was new stuff coming out all the time. Project Inform put out this magazine. I think it was called Beta with all the different studies going on. So that was my first reaction. Um, and I went on a 10-day silent meditation retreat with Gwenka, which is a Vipassana retreat. I just had this sense of I needed to really ground myself and be present. It really hit hard. And the first few months afterwards is kind of like this tizzy of doctors and what do you do and what do I choose to do? And AZT was coming out and there were these new meds called 3TC and D4T, different medications, not as effective as the proteus inhibitors. So I was really swirled up and kind of like becoming an expert in HIV. Um, fortunately, Erwin was with me and was probably, yeah, there's no way I could have done it without him. Um, but at the age of 32, I had mortality staring me in the face. And I knew people that had died. I mean, <clears throat> you can't live in San Francisco in the gay community and not know people who have died. I mean, you would see them on the street. So it was like, but I also, you know, I was an activist at the time. My, my work in the queer community was working, doing activism in LGBT youth rights. We used to go demonstrate. I helped write the San Francisco Unified School District's ordinance about how to change curriculum to be LGBT youth friendly. I mean, that was so, I think that's the energy that I brought to my diagnosis. It's like. So it sounds like that those years, uh, graduating from Berkeley, uh, meeting Irwin. Uh, discovering the queer minion, discovering the radical fairies, working uh, with youth development and the LGBT community uh, in the midst of the AIDS pandemic, discovering that you were infected. It sounds, uh, from the outside, it sounds like an incredibly powerful, transformative period of time. It most definitely was. <laughs> so is there any way that you can describe what your spiritual, for want of a better word, or whatever word you choose, what formative or evolutionary process took place for you in, I mean, it sounds like, a, you know, a, a, a container of fire, you know, it's just like, fire comes to mind just because of the intensity of mm -hmm. all of it. Maybe it's not the right word, but a container it sounds like a completely transform. If it happened to me, I would experience that as completely mm -hmm. transformative, I guess. Yeah. In hindsight, I definitely know that. Mm -hmm. Those years, kind of the beginning of 94 through 95, when all of this happened, mm -hmm. um, there was, uh, yeah, I came out a different person. I mean, part of it was the HIV diagnosis. Part of it was having the fairies as a community. Like I had people like me. I had people who were supportive, were just as wild as me and as explicit as me and celebrating life in the middle of the pandemic and the heart circle where you can just be present. There's, there's a lot to be said from sitting in a circle and learning how to speak from the heart. That's why Healing Circles so resonates. There's an 
there's an authenticity at such a deep level. And I didn't necessarily have access to those points. I was very much living in, very in, in my head. You know, cognitive linguistics is about as heady as you can get. Um, and it just dropped me into being present. And it's kind of like I decided on a whim to go to this 10-day silent meditation retreat because I just felt like I needed something to ground and hold me. I needed silence. I needed to be in nature. And all of those things happening at the same time, um, I think that's the beginning of doing the soul work. I mean, what you see today is definitely an outcome of those times. I think facing mortality is, uh, it changes who you are. I think the war did it, and I think that um, an HIV did it. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Oren Slosberg and host Michael Lerner. I, I didn't expect to live. Most gay kids don't expect to live, at least back then until they're 40 or 50. It's just something that when you have such deep self-oppression about your sexuality, but when you combine that with living the HIV pandemic, you definitely did not expect that. So I did not expect that I would be here. I'm going to be turning 60 in a month, which is, I'm still not absorbing it, not because I'm afraid of the age of 60, it's just because I never expected to live this long. So there is something about going through that um, almost initiation into working on soul and to what is important in life. Mm. You know, we have this one life. What are you going to do with it? Mm. I think that's Mary Oliver. You have this one precious life. What are you going to, she says it more eloquently, but that was clear to me. Mm. It's like, I remember going through, it's like, but what do I do now? So what did you do next? That's, I think, the point where my commitment to service was solidified. I feel like doing the the work at the youth, that that at the Jewish youth and the queer youth was more extension of the Israeli scouts more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but at that point, it's like you have one life, you have one planet, and you better do something useful with mm-hmm. it. And um, and from then, I always worked in in different forms of. Uh, of service and nonprofits, and committed to being to being present, developing daily practices. You know, I used to do. So, was the LGBTQ center different from the LGBT uh, work with youth? So, when I was did the work at Lyric, that was a youth center, um, and then. I was hired as a consultant for a new project in San Francisco, which was the LGBT Community Center. They're two separate projects. Um, This is what is now the San Francisco LGBT Center at Octavia and Market in San Francisco. Um, And I was the program director. They needed an executive director. I was there setting up the program, helping with with one needed to kind of shape the inside of the building. I wasn't as involved in, let's say, the fundraising or the building, but they needed an interim executive director. And so I said yes for some reason. Um, and so I was there when we opened the building. I was the interim um, executive director of the, the LGBT center, and I stayed on for another six months. But that was a deal all along. Um, I did not see myself as the director of the LGBT center. Um, but I was there when it, when it opened. We were on stage with Nancy Pelosi and Willie Brown cutting the ribbon. It was, that was, itself was an interesting experience. I mean, 
when we were setting up the center, I found myself in all these different focus groups where I was the only white boy. So I'd be in a group of, you know, working with young people, working with the queer indigenous community, working with um, black mothers and how each of them saw what community meant. And it was, for me, it was such a learning and unlearning of what the queer community is. So after you left being the interim executive director of the LGBT Center in San Francisco, um, what did you do next? I was kind of not sure what I was going to do. I know that at that point that I had enough of working in the LGBT. It's like I needed to do work that was not about life and death. Because even the LGBT center were still in for, I mean, at that point in the pandemic, the center opened in 2002, there was already protease inhibitors. In 1997, I got on protease inhibitors, my viral load went to nothing. And it's been that way since then, that's um, 26 years. But still working in the, in the queer community, I had enough. It was just too tiring. I felt like I wanted to do something where the stakes were lower, something that I could breathe into, work on something that had to do with nature or with beauty or with art. I was looking for something else. Um, in the meantime, I, I did a few projects here and there. I was doing work with youth development, working with other organizations as a consultant. So Irwin and I shared a lot of things. He was um, working at the AIDS like referral panel. Um, we shared the queer minion experience. Um, Erwin was not as engaged with the fairies as I was, but I continued to stay in guard. That was still my soul community. That was my spirit community. Um, that's where I connected with nature, too. I mean, a lot about fairy gatherings was about being in nature, sometimes with plant medicine to kind of deepen that connection. And so there was this evolution of family at the same time, an evolution of soul, um, the HIV infection kind of receded a little because it was managed by the medication. So there was this moment after the LGBT center opened, I guess Squid was six at that point, um, where I wanted to do something different. Um, and the other thread that needs to be woven into this is that in 94, the year I met Erwin, was also the year that he met his friends that started the Kinsey Six, which is yes. uh, America. So there are quite a few threads to pick up yeah, on. <laughs> a few of this, you know, the, so there's the fairy thread, the Crewminion thread, the family thread. Erwin yeah. um, continued as a director of the AIDS referral panel until 2000, but then he became a full-time singing drag queen, which is a natural evolution of any lawyer, or should be. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's so many threads here, but let's let's start with the family thread. So you and Anne had gotten to know each other. You got close. Yeah. She and her partner, Suji, uh, got married. Erwin married them. And the four of you have raised two sons yeah. and lived together in a um, compound. So that, that thread was... Um yeah, Anne and Suji had a kid on their own first, and we, we got involved with their family, uh -huh. um, became uncles, and then um, 
when they were rec- ready for a second one, they asked us to be even more engaged from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And throughout all of this time, they're living in Berkeley, we're living in San Francisco. But we were very involved in raising the kids, not as full-time parents at mm-hmm. the beginning, really about once a week, helping out when can. But mm-hmm. Anne and Suji were, were, were definitely the primary parents. Um, Ari was born in 2001. Um, yeah. He was born in April. And then the story that came to mind was September 11th, mm-hmm. 2001, because Erwin... And I had just spent the summer together because the Kinsey Six, which is a singing group of four drag queens that do political comedy and queer comedy, um, had um, just, we did a season in Provincetown. I was, um, we spent the summer together and Erwin stayed on because they were going to open a show at Studio 54. It was going to be an off-Broadway run. It was supposed to open, I forget the date, but it was October um, 2001 and on September so Ari was born in April and on September 11th which happens to be Irwin's birthday he was supposed to fly home from Newark to California mm. um, he didn't take the early plane thank God because he had a production meeting that day but his um, mother and his sister were with us because they came to meet the baby so we were all in California when when the towers came down. Um, that was a moment. Was he able to fly home? Uh, it took another week or so. Hmm. Yeah. The production meeting, I'm sure he'll remember that. The, one of the people in the office, his wife was in the building, so they were holding that on top of hmm. being in Manhattan at the same time. Um, and... I was still at the LGBT center. I remember being at the office and getting the phone call and on one hand, needing to care for his mother and his sister who are there to meet the baby and it's his birthday and holding him in the same space. I, I knew he was okay. Um, but that came up. And the thing is that those kind of acts of violence are familiar to me. When you grow up in Israel, you learn how to live with that. You learn how to, like, 82 may have been the only war I was in, but I lived there in 73 during the Yom Kippur War. I lived there in 77 during the Litani operation. Like, wars are something you get, you don't get used to it. But those kind of moments, I know where I go in my body when that happens. Where do you go? It's about being, it's, it's about you force yourself to be strong. You don't give in to the pain. You don't cry. You just like, this is what I'm going to do. This is the first reaction is to hold yourself together because you have no choice. And then once things start to calm down, then you breathe and you can open up. Mm-hmm. But I think while I was growing up in Israel, you actually never breathe and open up. You just keep holding yourself tight and together. I think that's, you know, the... The profile of the Israeli psychology is is amazing to me, and I think a lot of that is just learning to live in this pressure cooker that has these peaks. And I remember when there was a, a bus attack on a bus from Haifa to Tel Aviv, where there were people we knew that were killed on the bus. It's like these are an experience that every teenager has. I don't know as much now, but definitely back then. That those are the things that really teach you how to feel it in your body. It's like okay, so so you go like this right now. 
and you tighten up. When you hear about someone you know who was killed in the war, it's like it, it, in some ways it, it gives you this exterior strength to really hide what's going on, the fear or the sadness or the pain. Mm-hmm. And that's what September 11th was. It's like my first thing is to be... You know, something I wanted to ask you that has been sitting in the back of my mind because it has to do, there's this phrase that you know called code switching, right? Mm -hmm. Which is in the black community used a lot. But I want to ask you whether you think in terms of code switching in your own life. I mean, here you are you know, the kind of epitome of a responsible executive director of a, you know, interesting, strong nonprofit. And when people meet you, that's who they see, right? Um, At the same time, you are, um, uh, you know, an Israeli who was in the Israeli army and um, secular Jew. And then you are... uh, part of a very extraordinary uh, gay cultural phenomenon of uh, the queer minion, the radical fairies, and Erwin, who's a rabbi, uh, uh, also spent decades, right, as um, uh, part of a transvestite a cappella group, the Kenzie Six, which I've listened to a lot of their (laughs) songs on YouTube. And they're extraordinarily gifted. I mean, you know, uh, and they, they've had quite a cultural influence. You know, they've traveled all over the country, I think all over the world. Yeah. Right? Uh, so I guess what my question is, is how do you hold all these different identities? Um, and to what degree uh, do you sort of consciously code switch into different cultures or to what degree does it just feel fairly seamless and not a lot of code switching? I think that has changed over time. Mm -hmm. I think I don't code switch that much anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, 20, 30 years ago, it might have been different, Mm -hmm. but I would say that I think who I am now at home at Commonweal, I think that it's starting to be, I don't think it's starting, I think it's the same person. Um, it still does happen. I was at a wedding in Los Angeles mm-hmm. last weekend with my mother's family. There is definitely acting going on. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that's code switching. That is really, it's like, okay, you're in this completely different world than what I'm used to. I'll play by these rules. Um and that was out of respect to the to the family. Um, but I don't think I do code switching mm-hmm. anymore. I think that all those identities have been somewhat integrated. Mm-hmm. I'm that, wondering that. if that's true. I'd have to think about it. But mm-hmm. I think there's a consistency. I think how it manifests triggers different reactions and different relationships. So how who I am works out at home with the family or how it works at Commonweal or in other spaces differs. But I think that um, I, I've learned to really hold on to who I'm discovering who I am. And while that is changing, 
I don't think I have a significantly different switch. I mean, there's, you know, you behave different around different people. I think that goes without saying, but I don't think that that is code switching in the sense of like, I am different with my queer friends than I am with um, my family or I am with my work people. Like if you saw me in other settings, you would not be surprised. How do you, and from that matter, Erwin, hold what's going on in Israel right now? Israel is the hardest one. I mean, it's uh, the what I grew up with was very sheltered. My idea of Israel with this idealized version of a naive perspective of this is the homeland that we're coming through and we have the right, we never, the narrative that there are other people living here never entered. The, the war of independence was independence from oppression. It was not an independence that resulted in exiling and conquering people. Um, and it took time for that to sit in. It took time for that to settle in. So today looking at Israel, it's 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 very complex. And I actually there's a challenge about talking about it in the US because the the conflict in Israel is ancient. I mean, it goes back as much 20 years, 100 years, and 1,000 years, the relationships between Jews and Muslims and Christians, and that land carries all of that pain and burden. And it's kind of like the polycrisis. It's not a question of solving it. It's like, how much can we heal? Um, so it's, it's a very mixed relationship. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's easy to dismiss the leadership as being far right and crazy and racist, um, which is all true, um, and having the fear of that infiltrate the culture, but just the existence of the state of Israel, the idea that Jews live in this land, well, you know, there's, they probably have lived there throughout history. There's probably always been Jews in Israel, um, but that doesn't necessarily give the rights to all the Jews to live there. There's no easy way of how to parse it so that one could hold on to it in a way that feels right or just. So it's recognizing the complexity of it and being able to hold that um, with a lot of sadness. I mean, the, the pain and suffering that's going on there um, is profound. And with the current government, it's really widespread. I mean, just the number of Palestinians killed in the last six months has dramatically increased as a direct result of this government. It's like almost as if it's a policy decision. But that's, you know, Israel has this magic of, um, it can always get worse. It's like, it's throughout history. It's like, you look, it's like, God, it's so bad. And then it gets worse and then it gets worse and then it gets worse. I don't know where it's going. There's a lot of places on that land that feel dear to me that I'm connected. There's a lot of people that I'm connected there. Um, but it's it's kind of like the polycrisis in that it's omnipresent and you have to learn how to hold it and to look at it and make meaning out of it mm -hmm. as much as you can. Well, I mean, one thing that's just very real, what's going on in Israel is going on in the United States. It's going on in Hungary. It's going on in Poland. It's going on all over the world where, um, where uh, the reality of almost unbearable tensions are 
driving people toward uh, autocratic uh, and right. repressive forms of government. So um, it, it's part of a, a global phenomenon. It's not right. just Israel. But there's also the, the way I see it is that autocratic governments come and go, yeah. right? We've been through this before. I mean, World War II, you had mm-hmm. Italy, you, you, I mean, you had Mussolini, you had Stalin, you yeah. had Hitler, you had Japan. I, I bet there was a similar conversation. Mm-hmm. So I look at kind of the wave of history as it rides mm-hmm. on this substrata of another narrative. So mm-hmm. like the history of Israel for the last 2,000 years, or if you look at the Western world, it's like there is a substrata of capitalism that holds all these things on top of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, these autocratic governments, the depolarization, that existed in the U.S. before. Mm-hmm. It's like at this point, it's like I can't even imagine how we're going to take the next step. Mm-hmm. But it's supported by this underlying deep structure mm-hmm. of, in this country, I think it's the, it's, it's the, the kind of the American ideologies, the, mm-hmm. some of the Christian ethics, the, um, the capitalist and democratic structures. That's the substrata that, that holds these autocratic cultures, the Democrats, the Republicans, they come and go. Um, it's the substrata that I'm looking at, and that's what I'm looking at in Israel. Mm-hmm. We're looking at these thousands of years of history. You know, I, I have spoken to friends who say that, like friends that are not Jewish that live in Israel who say, well, you Jews, you're just the conquerors for now. Somebody else is going to come along because the history has been that it comes and goes and the olive trees keep on living. The country, the land is going to stay there. The dancing of our humans and our short lifespans are the dancing on top of this really deep structure. And that's the one that I have to figure out how to hold. And in Israel, it's complicated. To say the least. Um, I don't feel a need to go through each of the other iterations of your life in detail, but briefly, uh, did the consulting with the museums in Los Angeles come after the LGBT center? Was that the next big yeah. chapter? Yeah. That's tell su- us briefly about that. What did you do there? The, the summer when Irwin was in Provincetown, I met Philip Yanowin, who was the director of education at the MoMA in New York, and he and Abigail Hausen developed the visual thinking strategies. Um, and I started working with VTS around 2003, mm-hmm. and it lasted to 2013. The key thing that comes out of the VTS work is that it built on my cognitive linguistics experience about mm-hmm. how people make meaning out of the world around it. What is it that each of us sees through our eyes? And what are the abilities, the capacities, the developmental stages, the intuition, the interpretation we have on the world around us and how we make meaning? So when we talk about polarization, what are the things that have settled in us over the years that affect how we see the world? And when you work with art, and you have, you have the opportunity to be in a space, even in a homogeneous space, and have a conversation. It is amazing to me the, what people see in the same piece of art. You know, art is special in that it gives permission. There's not many things that allow ambiguity, that allow creativity. Art almost by definition does. So VTS opened my eyes to, you know, coming from a world which was about activism and in some ways dogma to understanding that there are each pair of eyes has a different experience in the world. And I think that's informed a lot of my presence here at Commonwealth. I worked with VTS for almost 10 years, um, training hundreds of teachers, if not thousands, 
um, teachers and museum educators and others, I still find that work so insightful and so essential, especially when it comes to the complex things that we have here at Conwell. So, and I watched you actually, my first big exposure to VTS was when you did that presentation for the foundation group uh, that Jean Evans invited you to do. And I've watched you do these things. And one of the things that's very striking to me, essentially the presenter projects an art image on the screen, says to the audience or the students, what's going on here? Different people begin to, somebody says what they see. Uh, The presenter says, what do you see that makes you say that? Uh, then the presenter repeats what the person has just said and then says, wonderful, what else can we say? And so they go around. So no question that through your leadership, VTS has been taught around the world. Uh, And uh, the Obamas made it one of their critical methodologies for uh, supporting the most uh, challenged right, the turnaround arts projects, turnaround arts projects, yeah. and uh, including at, uh, the Native American site. Mm-hmm. What was it? Uh, uh, wounded knee and not wounded knee. Oh, right, uh, when we did the work in South Dakota. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, but what I want to come to, aside from how widely it's been used, and now it's a Commonweal program, and sort of followed you here. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Oren Slosberg and host Michael Lerner. The level of your mastery at doing these, um, you know, at some level, anybody can do it, not anybody, but with a certain amount of training, people who have underlying skills can learn to do this. But there is a difference between that and having put in the 10,000 hours that makes somebody a master if they've got the underlying skills and your mastery of that is um is one of your outstanding gifts and i think it has a lot to do with how you guide commonweal Mm -hmm. you know it's just like one of your skills is that you listen very deeply you're not so much someone who learns from written text the mm-hmm. way I... You learn by listening. Right. And meanwhile, while you're listening, you're either drawing these little <laughs> intricate things with a pen in your notebook, or you're making little cranes, <laughs> little paper cranes. You're and, divulging all my neuroses. Yeah, so <laughs> you, you develop these piles of these little beautiful paper cranes, <laughs> which... Uh, which you do while you're you're listening, but the listening is going on on a separate channel from yeah. the drawing or the crane making, and and uh, and people feel deeply heard. And then what goes with that is that you remember it. It's not just that you listen; that the auditory memory is incredibly strong. Well, growing up in Israel, you don't learn how to listen. Israelis uh. are not known for their <laughs> listening skills. <laughs> um, that was the, the learning VTS, especially with Philip, who's a master at this, um, was as transformative as discovering the heart circle with the fairies. Mm-hmm. Because it really honed in my ability to connect. 
I do listen very intently. The reason I do I doodle or fold cranes um, is so that I don't distract myself, so that I stay focused and I don't multitask in my mm-hmm. brain while mm-hmm. I'm listening. So mm-hmm. when I do that, it keeps me just enough distracted on the crane or on the doodling to be fully attentive. And the practice of VTS, the practice of paraphrasing, is really a way of deepening listening. And I've developed this habit to some people, maybe annoying, of when you say something that's unclear, I'll ask for an explanation. I'll sometimes even phrase it with the VTS question. But in any form of communication, there's many layers. And usually they're not essential for the basic function, but at times you really want to understand what someone has to say. And that does give someone a sense that they want to be heard because I really want to know what they mean, especially if it's something that's important or something that's that's relevant or personal. It's like, I really want to understand it. And if I don't understand it, it's an opportunity to kind of, to kind of allow that form of, uh, of being together. Hmm. So it is something that... It is a practice. I mean, a lot of the things you talked about VTS, by the way, happened after. So I led VTS of 2013. They've had different leadership that has done amazing work over the last 10 years. Um, But I still feel it being as much a part of me, even though I'm not engaged with it much anymore, kind of like the fairies. Mm -hmm. They're still present of how I carry myself in the Mm -hmm. world. And the skill of, of listening for uh, it's, 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 it's a sign of respect mm. and it's a sign of kindness. Mm. As we do the last segment, you mentioned in the radical fairies group that not only was it nature, but also plant medicine mm-hmm. and you've been exploring plant medicine. Um, and from what you've said to me, it's been another source of important opening for you. Could you say more about the impact of plant medicine? Could I say more? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, you know, the trajectory, my, as I mentioned before, I very much lived in my head. And it started to break down with different moments in life. Um, the HIV diagnosis being a big one, VTS being another. Um, but there's... I, I'm very frontal cortex heavy is how I have moved through the world. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I, I get by. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use, I, I find intellectual and academic conversations fascinating. Um, my initial academic work in linguistics was about meaning, which is actually a deep soulful spiritual concept, but it was done through the academic lens. Mm-hmm. It was done in creating forms and structures, understanding metaphors, working with George Lakoff, um, studying with him. Um, But the frontal cortex was the first um, um, sieve that I saw the world through. So like everything got filtered that way. Um, So the moments that broke through that, like the heart circle, are always moments when I feel that I come more alive. So there's different code switching that we talked about before. Some of that has come because different forms of plant medicine help, I wouldn't say disable the frontal cortex, but definitely allows you to peek to what's behind. And I've had some experiences where 
it has been profound in making embodied some of this knowing that it wasn't necessarily what I have studied and I have read, but it's a deeper knowing. So through some, I mean, it's not that I do it that much, but I do it enough that I have gone back in time in lineages and been able to ask questions that were theoretical in a very real way. Like, I think I shared with you once of this experience of going back in the timeline until, until the days of Abraham, mm-hmm. kind of, and restructuring the sacrifice of Isaac instead of Abraham saying, yes, I will sacrifice my son, my one and only son. I don't know the words in English. I have it memorized in Hebrew. Um, How does it go in Hebrew? That you have loved. We studied, we studied Bible throughout all of our education an hour every day. Um, and in this journey, I went back to that moment which is where monotheism was born, right? This is Abraham saying, I am committing myself to this one God and I'm going to follow his order of sacrificing my son. And in my vision, Abraham said to God, no, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Which means that monotheism was never born mm-hmm. or at least this version of it, right? So it's like having that experience, what would be the world in which we don't have to have the separation between the divine and between divine human and earth, that it's all, that we don't have to have a dualistic analysis, but that we're part of it, which comes back to my connection with nature. But I knew there was a connection with nature. I, to me, my spiritual path is literally a physically path that you walk upon, that you connect with the earth, with you connect with the universe. Um, and monotheism brought a lot of things to the world. I'm not here to judge what's good or bad, but it definitely created a separation. And kind of that journey allowed me to go back and like, huh, feel what it would be if we had a different kind of existence. What would be the world that we're in? So there has been, in a sense, an awakening that happens because of that. And I think, you know, in some ways... It would have been nice to have access to that when I was diagnosed with HIV. Mm. And because dealing with end of life at the age of 32, um, my only context to that was war, where people were killed. But living in a pandemic, I think that would have provided some access to something that would have made my life. I could have, instead of going into this manic, studying everything, doing what I need to do, I could have entered it with with awareness, I don't know if with grace that might be pushing it. So there's something about these medicines that open doors. They don't, I don't believe they radically change you. I think that takes work, that takes time. It's not like you could in one mushroom trip suddenly achieve what someone has achieved in 10 years of meditation, but it opens doors, it provides access, it it gives you a glimpse, it creates an awareness that then you could follow or not. You know, God knows that if substances change who we are, the world would be a different place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the one I guess you could say that about meditation and yoga too. It's like if meditation and yoga really change everything who you are, the world would be a, a, a different place. But once again, it's within a, a context. It's mm-hmm. like you need to follow up on your contemplative practice. What does it mean to be in service of the world? Being aware of the world is the first step. But what is our role here? What is our mm-hmm. function? What is the community that we're part of? Just meditating every day is not the answer in the same way that practicing um, 
plant medicine is not the answer. They provide access. So there are moments when, I, when they have opened doors that I've walked through that allowed me to do the work afterwards. But I really see like what grounds me in the world is my daily practice. That, to me, is the foundation of how I stay present in the work that we do, especially in this place when we're looking at things like the polycrisis and other challenges. To me, that is a lot more powerful than the plant medicine experiences. You just mentioned your daily practice, and I'm grateful you did, because one of the changes I watched you go through was um, how you were in your early uh, years at Commonweal, and then with your friend, uh, extraordinary Greg traditional Chinese medicine practitioner, um, you, uh, you developed a practice that... Um, as you described it, and I watched it, uh, had a profound impact. Could you say more about that? So my dear friend, Greg LeBeau, um, I met him in that same time when I met Erwin. A lot of things happened. I mm-hmm. met Ann and Suji, I met Greg, I met Erwin. Um, we were kids. He was 25, I was mm-hmm. 29. Um, and then he, we became very close friends, and Greg had his own path. Um, and ended up um, being a student of Chinese medicine. He's now a Chinese medicine practitioner. And because Greg and I had this very deep soul connection, and I think he's someone in which I am aware that it is a connection at that level, we learn a lot from each other. And through that, I learned a lot about the Tao and um, the Chinese cosmology. And that has been... um, very influential in how I see the world. And also, so I did an intensive with Greg once for a week, and out of it, um, we developed a practice. I mean, it evolves over time, but it's um, I alternate between doing Tai Chi practice and uh, a shadow yoga routine that both of them I learned from Greg. And that is essential in keeping me on my feet and conscious. I think I can deal with the pressures of life because that holds me, that embodied experience. I used to meditate every day. This is a different kind of experience. I still do meditate, but it's really the embodied practice that keeps me focused and grounded every day. And I know you saw the transformation. I attribute a lot of my ability to deal with a lot of things because every day I bring myself into these um, this movement, it's kind of like embodied meditation in a sense um, that, 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 that keeps my core aligned. I mean, from the outside, uh, the experience was you moved from a certain tentativeness about your leadership style to an embodied leadership style, which was very markedly different. It was like, a, okay, here I am, you know, here's how... I do this. Um, so, yeah, and I think that manifests. You were asking before is like this idea around leadership when we bring other people in. This idea of a stewardship circle. Mm-hmm. I think it comes from that as well. Mm-hmm. It's the understanding that it's not about one person and one ego, but that we're living in mm-hmm. a living and breathing cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jennifer Stoll asked you know, what impact having this conversation has had on me. And first of all, I've known many of the pieces, but putting them all together this way is just a gift. Um, Second thing is, 
I'm impressed by the courage uh, I think it took to decide that you wanted to do this. I mean, this is coming out yeah. <laughs> in a certain way, right? It's like really, uh, you know, there's nothing. I asked you in advance, is there anything you wanted to put off, off boundaries? And you said no, you know. So just the willingness to be present in all these different aspects of yourself, to me, it it. it Take some courage to do that for any of us in our lives, you know. The third thing is um, that we really haven't, we've touched on your story and how you experience it, but we really haven't touched on uh, my experience of your extraordinary skills in leading Commonweal. And I will only say that I, as a deep introvert who has always wanted a half-hidden life, created a half-hidden organization, you know, <laughs> and um, and there's a reason why nobody can explain why Commonweal, what Commonweal <laughs> is, because it hasn't had that kind of external right. identity. It was like, you know, just keep a low profile and do the work and let the program shine and, um, and be of service in the world. And, and essentially... As you said, health and healing, education, the arts, uh, environment and justice, resilience. Um, but it's really a license to do whatever form of service we can mm-hmm. figure out is useful at any given Sorry. time. Sorry. It's really a form of uh, service um, that gives us a license to do whatever seems to be of use at any given time. And I I think that has been part of the genius of Commonweal that unlike organizations that have one theme that they follow, we follow, depending on how you count, but at least a dozen, you know. And then this sense that the fundraising isn't centralized, the program directors are the flower, they can do their work and need to find their own sources of support. Uh, and the, the observation of our friend and colleague, Catherine Fulton, who's the vice chair of the board, that she has rarely seen a founder and a successor work as well as you and I have together. And she said that usually one of two things happens, that the founder stays too long, mm-hmm. Or the founder leaves and says, it's yours, I'm out of here. Right. And in our case, we've just found this amazing natural ability over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I don't, I mean, I don't think we've had a single serious disagreement in 10 years. You know, we've had There have been disagreements, but none of disagreements, them critical, but yeah. It's not, you know, yeah. not a matter of life and death. Right. Usually, usually it ended up me apologizing for something. <laughs> it's not even near life one and of, death. <laughs> one of my specialties is to do stuff and then apologize for it. Um, but to me, my experience is um, one of the greatest gifts that Commonwealth's had is your willingness to um, to come here and to lead it. And I'm also very struck by um, the recognition, which I sensed before, 
that you've really never sought the leadership positions, that they come to you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's a very specific style of leadership because it's not driven by a need for power. Or the need for power is not the primary right. thing. It's like you come into an organization and you come in at the start in some non-top leadership role and then people recognize your particular gifts. I think part of the reason you're trusted is that uh, it's at some level apparent that you weren't, it wasn't an ego trip, you know. Um, I think that's true. And so just for me at age 80, as you turn 60, the ability to have a sense that once again, Commonwealth is reinventing itself. And that I was actually thinking about it because I'm working on trying to recover the history of the last 48 years and reading the first prospectuses that I wrote in January of 1976 when it was just the beginning of the thought and then November when I'd formed the various boards and it was beginning to be more. And I looked at them... And uh, this was actually challenging for me. I looked at them, and on the one hand, I saw that the core idea of Commonweal has survived for 47 years. On the other hand, the content of what preoccupied me at that point seemed so far away to me, you know? Uh, You know, um, and... Then I I think about, I think two things happen with organizations I've been involved with, not just this one, but others where I've been around for long enough to witness it. Either the container remains useful, but mm-hmm. the content changes, or the container collapses but other people pick up the core themes that were being explored mm-hmm. through that container. And um, so I thought about that, and Commonweal's a container that's been sustained, and some very deep core themes have been sustained. But then I realized, because I'm a writer, you know, I'm not all that proud of the things I've written over 47 Mm -hmm. years. A few of them have some light. But what I'm grateful for is the community, you know? And it's a community that's been dedicated to the common wheel, the well-being of the community. And what that means has changed, although there have been these core themes that Mm -hmm. have held through this period of time. And then I realized that there was something deeper than the community that I was grateful for. And it was the impulse behind the community. Mm -hmm. It was that hundreds of people and thousands of friends have over 47 years shared an impulse to contribute part of their lives to a shared work of service. And so what I really identify with 
and not the writing and not the history. And I'm grateful that this theme of healing ourselves and healing the planet or healing the earth proved productive. And I'm grateful that work with kids, work with cancer, work with the environment, you know, the, the, the different, the new school, different themes have proved productive. I'm grateful that the strategies of allowing projects to rise and fall, the idea that people have to, you know, raise their own money and can do their own work. I'm grateful for the themes of kindness and service as core themes. I'm very grateful for the theme of embracing error as opposed to Mm -hmm. punishing it. Um, But what I discover I'm most grateful for is to have participated in an impulse that created a community that still seems to be of service with a whole new set of generations. And so for me, that's, that's what I'm grateful for, you know. And for you to have shown up, this idea that the right people show up, and for you to have shown up and for us to have taken... A, we took a year at least yeah. to think about whether this was right for you and right for me. And uh, that poem, uh, famous mm-hmm. by Naomi Shihab Nye, I think the line is more like, you know, she said she gives all these different right. examples of people who are famous in different ways, you know. But she says, I want to be famous to the children with sticky fingers who smile as they're crossing the street as the one who smiled back. Mm -hmm. She says, I want to be famous the way a pulley or a buttonhole is famous, not because of them being great, but because they never forgot what they could do, Mm -hmm. you know? And that was the poem. When you asked me, why me? And I read you that poem. And it was about, and I think we shared that, that we wanted to be famous, you know, as the one who smiled back with the kids right. with sticky fingers or as the, the buttonhole or the pulley, not for some big expensive right. reason, but because we never forgot what we could do. Right. And I just think that part of Commonweal, along with kindness and a commitment to service and consciousness or whatever you want to call wisdom, that part of it at some deep level is um, that we haven't forgot what we can do. Mm-hmm. We don't need to be some big deal, right. but we've never forgotten what we can do. And that, that willingness to function at that level, um, I mean, I do call it, you know, with Emerson, uh, I'm sorry, with um, T.S. Eliot, uh, I call it humility. Humility is a tricky word the way wisdom is a tricky word. But there's something about not forgetting mm-hmm. what we can do. And here we are, uh, you know, 47 years later doing it together. And I really couldn't be more grateful. Mm-hmm. So, any last reflection? When you started, you asked me to describe what Commonweal was, Mm -hmm. and the first words were community. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's that that says a lot. 
right? So we're part of the same community. I don't refer to you as my teacher mm-hmm. or as my guru and hesitantly maybe as a mentor mm-hmm. um, because it feels like we're sharing community. Absolutely. And I'm hoping that that is a value that can reverberate. It's mm-hmm. not that we need to lead with ego. It's not that we're looking to conquer or scale. Mm-hmm. Um, being a buttonhole is sufficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lawrence Slosberg, thank you for being with me at the new school. Thank you, Dr. Lerner. Yeah. <laughs> thank you all. Are we done? We're done. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Oren Slosberg and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.